Howdy, Tonzilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X-Pod, escapingthecave.com. That's my website. I'm your friendly and congenial host, Todd. Thanks for clicking in today. I'm recording on September 11th, 2020, this part of it. The rest of this is going to be a rebroadcast of an episode I released on May 23rd of 2019. One good thing about my material, it ages well. This is episode number 17. It was entitled Illusion of Knowledge and Democratized Opinion. And it's been one of my better performing episodes since I've been doing this. And still, it's held up extremely well. And I think it's actually gaining more uh, relevance as time goes on, particularly this year. And I think once you start listening to it, maybe again, maybe you've heard this before, you'll see why. Going to start out with the data information, knowledge, wisdom pyramid, talking about data overload, uh, informational consumers, how to become an informational consumer, and how to get from sifting through random data, hopefully to a point where you're wise. After that, it's the illusion of wisdom, talking about Plato, talking about ostentatious ignorance versus authentic knowledge. Think about that phrase, ostentatious ignorance versus authentic knowledge. Going to talk about uh, Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan as well. Marshall McLuhan, he's the founder of the media ecology field of study. Postman talks about technology's effect on discourse. Two authors, if you're listening to this podcast, you should be familiar with those two guys. Then I give you a quick introduction to a guy named Elias Abujaud. I think I got his name right that time. You're going to hear me butcher that name? Somehow I put an N in there that didn't belong. Elias Abujaud. That's what I'm going to call him. Hopefully, I've got it right this time. Anyway, he authored a book called uh, Virtually You that came out in 2011. Uh, The subtext of the subtitle of the book is called The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. It's incredibly interesting and I think really, again, applies to what's going on today. And and, And I'll say it again. I think this stuff is becoming more relevant as time goes on. I'm going to talk about the horizontal bop. It's not what you think. It's not a Bob Seger song either. Also about convenient informational foraging, looking for what you want to find. Then I'll move into the democratized opinion section, talking about rather than maybe ushering in a new democratic utopia, how we may be obliterating democracy with informational anarchy. The one man, one vote, and how that applies to reality. Facts. Informational anarchy, this may be one of the very first places that I use that phrase. I'll talk about that and its relationship to the organic man. People checking out, too. Now, this is really important. And this comes up later on in the podcast, in the propaganda series that I got to in, I guess, late July, early August of 2019, about three months after this podcast was released. But in this episode, I'm talking about people checking out. It's one of the effects of propaganda. People get frustrated. People get frustrated with the extremism. They leave the political process. Now, it was actually part of one of the sections of Jacques Lul's propaganda. And he pointed out that that effect is sometimes, not always, but sometimes intentional. That the purveyors of the powers that be want as many people checked out of the political process as they can because that process becomes easier when you don't have sensible dissenters demanding reasonable discourse. And once that happens... Yeah, it's easier. Who's left, right? Extremists and those in power. They've got an easier road uh, when those sensible dissenters have, in essence, committed civic suicide. Now, considering when it was recorded, it's understandable, but there's a couple of places where this podcast is incomplete. And one of those places is that it's missing the need for propaganda. 
The other is the flip side of when I start talking about human nature and Hobbes and Leviathan. Okay? That point in particular I have evolved on since then. I touched on it in the Blacklands Abyss podcast back there a few months ago, and I want you to keep that in mind when you hear me talking about the id on parade. It's half the story. Because how do you account for, if you're talking about general human nature, how do you account for the 16 or 18-year-old girl who gave her life saving eight kids who were drowning over the summer? How do you account for people putting their life at stake to save people in Nazi Germany? It's the dualistic split that I've talked about. I ignore it in this podcast, but it's there. It's the God-Devil parable. It's inside of all of us. That split resides inside of each and every one of us to some degree or another. I do not put that forth in this podcast, the one that's coming up, but I will. To risk redundancy, I have evolved on this issue a great deal. I have a whole thing written up. It's not quite done, but keep that in mind when I start talking about human nature in this podcast. The rest of it, let's get to it. Enjoy. I thought that was an appropriate tune for the show today, Land of Confusion, Genesis, heading back to the 80s. We are going to be heading back to uh, the 1980s quite a bit, actually a little bit further than that. Maybe not today. Actually going to spend most of our time in the 2010s, right around 2011. But I wanted to start off with that tune because um, it ties into this first segment. I want to talk about the uh, DIKW Pyramid. And what that is, is the Data Information Knowledge Wisdom Stack. Okay, I want you to envision a pyramid. And at the base, the really wide base is data. Data is everywhere. You move up from data to information. (laughs) Hopefully, (laughs) right? You get rid of all the useless crap, then you have usable information. And when you delve into that, you put it into context, then you move up a little higher on the pyramid and you're dealing with knowledge. You are a knowledgeable person at this point, right? And at the very top, the very pinnacle, where very few people reside, that's why it's a little tiny chunk, is the wisdom pyramid. It's a really useful visual visualization of learning and incorporating things into your mind. The DIKW pyramid worth looking into. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we are uh, drowning at the very bottom layer of that pyramid at the data level. We're flooded with it as every product, news outlet, ideology, and religion compete for your eyeballs, compete for your revenue generating clicks, compete for sales, even followers to sort of inflate their status as social media influencers. This ties directly in to Marshall McLuhan, also Neil Postman, uh, Nicholas Carr. You're going to be hearing a lot of that guy's name eventually, not today so much. And this guy named um, Elias, I'm going to butcher this name, <laughs> but this is where we're going to spend most of the time today. His name's uh, Elias Abujuande, or Abujuande, Abu, uh, I can't say it, Abujuande, A-B-O-U-J-O-U-A-N-D-E. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to mention his work a lot today, and I'm going to put his uh, Amazon link 
inside of the description of the episode, and I'll probably uh, throw it up on my Facebook page as well. But I'm going to call him Dr. Eli <laughs> moving forward, okay? I hate to disrespect the guy, I, but I can't say his name. I don't know how to pronounce it, and I don't want to mispronounce it. So Dr. Eli. Anyway, all of these folks, McLuhan, Postman, Carr, Dr. Eli, several others, warned us about human beings being overwhelmed and unable to sift through, let alone process as true and false, the data cacophony attacking them constantly as we become more and more globally and instantaneously connected. McLuhan and uh, Postman's era, the 60s through the 80s, that was child's play, okay, compared to this, what we're experiencing and enduring today. But the ideas, this is really key, I think, to me, the ideas and the observations that they held in the 1960s, maybe the 1980s, even the 1990s, early 2000s, right, are useful in the context of when they were written, okay, to maintain a perspective on where we have come from. And these ideas hold. No one has time or has had time for a long time to sift through all of this data. Now, you sophisticated media consumers, you will try. I give you credit for that. I know you do. These folks get rid of the needless static. The stuff they know is propaganda. The stuff they know is fake just generated as clickbait, they get rid of it. They disconnect from these factually malignant sources and still go further than that. They scrutinize what they read, adjusting for inevitable bias, maybe even especially their own bias. These are truly sophisticated media consumers, and they're rare. And sometimes I think people move in and out of that state. I know I do. Periodically, depending on my state of mind, so how cynical I am, how sick and tired of everything I am. <laughs> I went through that this week a little bit. I don't think, you know, I, I think that's true. I think that that sort of changes every now and then. But if you can maintain at least some awareness of bias, both in the material you're reading and in your own bias and what you're looking for, you're uh, heads and tails ahead of most people. Are you one of these people that actually curates what? you're taking into your mind? Do you think about the information you're ingesting, both with your eyeballs, with your mind, and with your heart? What you're internalizing? Are you sure? Have you even thought about that? Seriously thought about it? Now, let's assume, just for a moment, that you are one of these sort of unicorns, right? How many others do you know other than you? How many other truly critical thinkers, and maybe more importantly, Critical consumers of information do you personally encounter on a daily basis? Here's another question. How influential are they? Do they even have a voice? Or are they shouted down and drowned out by the competing mobs? This is the effect of not only the for-profit boutique news, as I touched down in the Media 101 cast. It's also a byproduct of boutique for-profit, or follower prestige clickbait data. To a point now, it's understandable. I have to remember this. It's hard for me sometimes. It's, it, it is understandable. There's too much to sort out. But here's the thing, man. Trump's fake news is either clickbait propaganda or both. Everywhere. It exists. It's not just MSNBC or CNN or, from the other side, Fox. And it's hard to tell the difference. The propaganda 
has gotten so sophisticated. The agenda-driven information has gotten so sophisticated that sometimes it's impossible to tell when you're being propagandized, when you're ingesting fake news. And when that happens, when you can't tell the difference, it's understandable to cling to an informational life raft. Anything to keep you afloat, to keep you, uh, give you at least the illusion that you're understanding what's going on, right? Gives you a framework to work within instead of just a state of confusion, a land of confusion. Have to remember that. It's important to to at least keep some empathy and, and sense of understanding about this. Because even the, even the best-intentioned people can get lost in this mess. Now, it's understandable to a point, okay? But once you're aware of that, <laughs> you are responsible for your own mind. Can't blame everybody else all the time. Now, there's something else that's going to lay the foundation for the rest of this podcast, and it's on my uh, escapingthecave.com Homepage. If you go to that website, you go to the very top, you're going to see a tab entitled uh, The Legend of Tamus, Illusion of Wisdom. This is a story from Plato. I forget the uh, dialogue that it was in, but I'm going to give you a real quick, I mean, very insufficient recap and encapsulation of what Plato was getting at with the uh, illusion of wisdom. He was having a discussion in this um, thing about writing. Writing was a new technology back then, okay? And the discussion at its core was about whether or not writing was a good thing. One side was arguing that it made people smarter, that it gave people the ability to retain information and spread information, whereas the other side said that it cost human beings more than it provided because it destroyed their need to exercise the memory. And that writing could make people appear a whole lot smarter than they really are. That with writing and with this new technology, thousands of years ago, that people could prop up an illusion of wisdom. Neil Postman got into this. I was introduced to it, I think, probably almost 15 years ago by Neil Postman's Technopoly. I think that's the opening segment of it. And it's like, yep, I get this. And the crux of this is how technology changes us, whether we realize it or not. And most often, we don't. This is the message from people like Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, before the Internet. They were warning about the, the, the damage television was doing, how television, just network over-the-air TV was changing us, changing how we thought, how we digested information, how we perceived the world, how accurately we perceived the world, how we would crux and depend and flock toward entertainment rather than actual information, and how that made us susceptible less intelligent. Nicholas Carr, and there have been others, uh, they're usually slightly obscured, sort of lost in the cacophony of nothing slash everything. You don't hear too much about these guys, but Nicholas Carr put out a landmark book a few years ago called The Shallows. And that updated McLuhan, Postman, and a few other people's ideas into the internet age. Other people have done it. I'm not saying they haven't, but this is the one that I have gravitated to, and it was sobering. I suggest, I would highly highly advise you that if you're interested in this subject, and if you're still listening to this podcast, I assume you are, if you have not read 
or even sort of thumbed through Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, get your butt on Amazon and read it. Don't take my word for it. Grab the book, read it, see what you think. See if it resonates with you. See if you have some sense of familiarity about it. He started writing this book because he was a writer and found himself online so much and suddenly unable to concentrate. He couldn't read a damn book. He couldn't stay on topic. Does this sound familiar to you? Are any of you sort of noticing that in your own lives? I was having this conversation with people 10 years ago. We had no idea what it was. I can't read a book anymore. I can't stay on the damn... Well, this is part of the reason why. Nicholas Carr gets into that. It's the click and bolt nature of the internet. Click on a website, you look at it for a minute, you find whatever it is you're looking for, you go on to the next, go on to the next, go on to the next. It kills your ability to concentrate on anything. There's a physical sort of something tied into neuroplasticity in the mind. Thankfully, according to Mr. Carr, that's also the cure. You can regain your ability to focus, think, drill down, dive down into topics deeply. Disconnect. I've talked about this. I'm almost certain. I think in the um, Cyberspace Monkeys podcast, I think I went into that. That's not really what I'm talking about today, though. But I am going to talk about what technology has cost us. And the illusion of wisdom, the illusion of knowledge. Memorizing out-of-context facts to offer others a show of ostentatious ignorance rather than possessing authentic wisdom or knowledge. Plato thinks it began with writing, but that's been one of the common themes all the way through. Gutenberg, in his press, took us from an oral mind, speaking, to what Neil Postman called the typographic mind. We started to read. Reading allows for the deep drilling into a subject. It also requires a lot of work, a lot of attention, a lot of focus. If you're doing it right and you're choosing good material, you are downloading to stay in the 21st century, I guess, someone else's carefully researched and detailed knowledge into your own mind. With context, usually. That's the nature of books. They're detailed. They're thorough. If the author has done his job. Now, Marshall McLuhan, back in the 1960s, he uh, sort of became the guy who founded the field of study called media ecology. He's kind of seen as the prophet on the whole topic, the, the, the founding father, if you will. And he was one of the very first ones to scream the warning about the effects of technology, the deeper unconscious effects of technology. I suggest that uh, Edward R. Murrow did something very similar in 1958. I got into that in the Media 101 podcast. McLuhan also coined the phrase, classic phrase, the medium is the message. Maybe you've heard that. And that's suggesting that the medium, books, TV, radio, podcasting, Twitter, or even the click and bounce websites all have less to do with content than how the content affects information consumption and discourse. And maybe more importantly, the perception of wisdom, you know, both the internal perception of our own wisdom egocentrically and how we evaluate who we listen to. Some people, like Carr, go as far as to say that because of neuroplasticity, the mind's ability to rewire its synaptic connections, our minds are physically changed. I just mentioned this, physically changed by technology. 
personally, I and others have a suspicion that this is tied into the uh, surging diagnoses of ADHD, the inability to focus on anything. I can't prove this. I am not a doctor. Do not take my medical advice, but I highly suspect that if you're having a problem, and if your child is having a problem with attention deficit or the inability to focus, and he's attached to the internet or his phone or some sort of electronic device all day long, maybe disconnect him. I'm just saying, you do what you want, your kid. I'm not going to tell you how to raise your child. <laughs> but maybe consider it. Lots of other people have put forth that idea. And Neil Postman, he didn't care one way or another. He did not care if TV and the rest of the technology moving forward made people stupider. Wasn't really his thing. He was inclined, his word, to think that they did. <laughs> but he didn't really care to address it because he didn't need to. Here's a quick paragraph from Amusing Ourselves to Death. <laughs> he says that, uh, I will not burden myself with arguing the possibility, for example, that oral people are less developed intellectually than writing people or that television people are less developed intellectually than either. My argument is limited to saying that a major new medium changes the structure of discourse. It does so by encouraging certain uses of the intellect by favoring certain definitions of intelligence and wisdom, and by demanding a certain kind of content. In a phrase, by creating new forms of truth-telling. I will say once again that I am no relativist in this matter, and that I believe the epistemology created by television not only is inferior to a print-based epistemology, but is dangerous and absurdist. Do I even need to transfer this forward, to move this forward a little ways? This was written in 1985. It doesn't take a genius to connect the dots from 1985 to 2019. That's Neil Postman. That book's a classic. There's another. If you're interested in this stuff and you've never read Postman, read Postman. Amusing Ourselves to Death and uh, Technopoly. There's a couple other ones I'll be happy to <laughs> pass along if you're interested. Again, 1985 to now. The, the, the dot connection is obvious. And if you can't see that, if, you, if that is absent to you, this is not the podcast for you. Back to the topic, though, the illusion of wisdom. Contemporary times in the Internet. Nicholas Carr and others go into the illusion of knowledge in depth. They are channeling Plato, Marshall McLuhan. I'll be spending a lot of time today with that other person I just mentioned, Dr. Eli. As I said, I'll add the uh, link to his book in the description of the podcast here. The book is called Virtually You, Abu Jawande. If you want to try it on your own. Now, both Dr. Eli and uh, Nicholas Carr both talk about the horizontal rather than the vertical nature of online information gathering. So in other words, you're spending more time looking for answers, bouncing from web website to website, than you actually spend reading them. And not only answers... Agreeable answers, as I lightly invoke Jonathan Haidt and his elephant. He also says that collecting data on the internet doesn't involve true reading. It's actually the evasion of reading. You're clicking. You're flicking. On social media, you're scrolling through virtual piles of cyberspace garbage, and you're not reading anything. You're not learning anything. You're not deep diving and drilling down at a topic. You're bouncing from place to place to place to place to place. So that's horizontal as opposed to vertical, picking a topic, picking a subject, drilling down, down to the mantle of it. 
something like 20 years ago. People studied this stuff back when the internet was young, and they probably still do today. But I know that 20 years ago, they found that 75% of online readers scanned rather than read word for word. You know what I'm talking about. We probably all do this by now. Pick some piece of information, open it up, and our eyes just scan the page looking for certain keywords, certain ideas that we have found something worthwhile. And people figured that out. I mean, they know how to make clickbait now. They know people want the information they're looking for right now, this very minute. They don't want to learn anything in the real sense of the word. Most often, people are looking to feed their elephant, Heights elephant. And they'll keep clicking and they'll keep scrolling until they find the elephant's Twinkie. Dr. Eli compares it to uh, online foraging. (laughs) Great way to look at it. Where the informational hunter-gatherer is simply choosing the easiest prey, the lowest hanging fruit. And Eli even uh, includes a quick how-to guide. I mentioned it a minute ago about uh, showing you how you, the online content creator, can snare the unsuspecting hunter-gatherer. Lays it all out for you. Tells you what people are looking for. Little things like bullet points. Summing things up at the very top. It looks like clickbait because it is clickbait. We're all familiar with it now, right? Ask a question in the headline. Oh, I've seen it about podcasts too. Oh, you wanna? You, do you really want to get your podcast going? Make sure you ask a question in the description. I tried it in the first one. The Media 101, go look at it. I tried it. It worked. There's another aspect of this, too, is uh, narcissism. And uh, social media, web pages, old-time blogs. Everybody's got a podcast now. Everybody, including me. Mine's awesome, though. And also the tendency to overestimate one's own aptitudes. The Dunning-Kruger effect. We're all familiar with that now, right? All of this is a huge factor. It deserves its own space. More than I'm going to offer today, but it will get some at some point in time. I promise you that. All right, here's a fun little quote for you. Let's travel back to 1991. This is from a very early internet fan. guy who's really a proponent of where the internet was going to take us. These fantastical places, right? He says that just as the advent of the Colt 45 revolver during the taming of the Wild West equalized the balance between a small person and a large one, right? Telecommunications can equalize the balance of power between citizens and power brokers. Utopia. Star Trek is coming. Oh, it's equality and democracy. Oh, thank God it's here. That's where he thought it was going. And as Dr. Eli put it, global connectivity, he, they hoped, would peacefully erase unwarranted privilege, bringing us closer together than ever before, enhancing democracy. An Athens without slaves, brought on by democratizing information. So how's that working out for us? Tearing down the informational boundaries online. Now, maybe I'm perpetuating that right now. I don't know. I'll leave such judgments to you today. But tearing down those informational boundaries online has and is obliterating utopian notions of democracy because everyone feels equally informed. And as the Dunning-Kruger thing pointed out, qualified. My ignorance has as much merit as your knowledge because it's my opinion. Oh, my holy opinion. We've all heard that at some point, right? 
It's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. I'll think what I want. This is informational anarchy. Open access to data, even information. Remember the pyramid, right? Open access to data, even information, the next level up, without introspection, without concern for external truth, let alone context, is a fundamental block to legitimate knowledge, the third tier on that pyramid. And you're never getting to wisdom if you can't get to knowledge. But since we can, you know, sort of curate our propaganda now and use Google, the Google, as a cheap imitation for real learning, actual retention of information, it's easy to erect a cheap facade, the illusion of knowledge. Are you with me? Good. And it's a facade that's easily torn down, of course, uh, but because we've surrounded ourselves with like thinkers, like thinkers who adore our illusion because it reinforces theirs, no illusion demolition is ever completed. If there's a danger, we retreat to the echo chamber. We stop engaging. People who want to tear down our facade, our illusion, that want to look behind our little curtain and see the joke that Oz might be. Maybe they want to look up Dorothy's skirt. I don't know. You decide. You can pick your own metaphor here. I, I am however you want to do it. What it boils down to, though, is one man, one vote with facts. My friends, one man, one vote. Every opinion's equal. I'm entitled to my opinion. It's just as valid as yours. Does not apply. Does not apply. I'm going to say this again. Does not apply to truth. Does not apply to facts. It doesn't even apply to the comprehension of reality at all. The whole concept is laughable in any discussion about an external truth. Your opinion, your holy opinion, say you have the opinion that the earth is flat, it doesn't matter at all if you're searching for the external truth about a round earth. And why are you searching for it anyway? It's already been proven. Quit looking for that. You're wasting your time on that. And quit wasting your time dealing with people who think the earth is flat. Please, for the love of Christ, stop. If we ignore them, maybe they'll starve. Anyway, one man, one vote does not apply to reality. Okay? Now, today, everyone is more than a decade into being able to express these holy opinions online about everything, whenever they want, at every whim. How do you suppose that affects the organic original version of this online digital avatar? I have a couple of examples I could tell you. I told you about the guy in Iowa, right? On my hitchhiking trip back in 2016. It was the last day. I was just about back to Chicago and I had a truck stop. I just got dropped off, walking through a parking lot, see a guy. He's from Homer, Michigan, right up the street from where I, right up the road from where I grew up. Thought I'd say hi. It was right after Trump's election, right after the election. I didn't say anything political to him. He just started posting to me. Eh, we sure showed those libtards, didn't we? He had Confederate flags decorating his truck all the way through the cab. I, had, I did not indicate anything to him that I was political at all. I just said, hi, I grew up near Homer. How you do? We sure showed those libtards, didn't we? The guy was basically coming onto Twitter and is belching something into a, a completely, it was a complete non sequitur. Maga. 
I think I told the story last year in the other podcast when I was out on that same trip just before the election this time. I was in Phoenix on Halloween having a nice little gathering, nice little Halloween party at this apartment complex. Everybody's getting along great. Then a liberal guy decided he was going to drop some truth on Trump guy. And they basically began posting their prefabricated talking points, propaganda points to one another. Can you imagine how that went? Neither one of them were listening to each other. Neither one of them were making a hell of a lot of sense. They were lobbing steaming piles of propaganda at each other, and it almost came to blows. That's how it affects the organic version. The online avatar version does affect the organic version if you're not careful. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've all seen it. To pretend it doesn't exist is ridiculous and is delusional. And to pretend it's not getting worse is even more delusional. And here's something else I wonder while I'm talking about it. You know, those students that we see on all these college campuses, right? These kids have spent their entire formative life on social media. I wonder if what we're seeing with like free speech and attacks on all these speakers is some sort of organic manifestation of what I'm what I've just been talking about. If they're taking this online avatar personality, being so used to being able to post and interject their holy comment into every conversation they see without waiting until anybody's done speaking or without having to consider that somebody might have another point they'd like to make before they're allowed to post. I wonder if this has anything to do with what we're seeing on college campuses now and the mob behavior of shouting somebody down that you don't like. That is internet behavior. That's, it's, it's a direct reflection of how people behave on Twitter and on Facebook. I've attributed that to authoritarianism in the last few weeks. I still hold to that. I think that's a possibility, but I'm also offering up the possibility that the, the internet is manifesting itself in real life. That online behavior is becoming public behavior now. A guy in Iowa, like I said, he was posting. The guys I talked about in Phoenix in 2016, just for the election. Trump guy, liberal guy, both posting. Started by a liberal guy that time, by the way. Wasn't a Trump voter. Trump voter was the sensible one in that case. I wonder if these idiots that we're seeing polluting discourse on college campuses around the country, I wonder if they're just sort of trolling and they don't know it. Or maybe they do and just don't care. That would be even worse. I'm sure each and every one of us have examples of this in our personal lives. People who cannot keep from interrupting you with some truth they've clearly found in some unsavory back alley online. Yet they think that it carries weight. They actually think it carries as much weight as anything from reputable sources because information has become democratized. One man one vote, my truth. They've internalized, conveniently, narcissistically, and ridiculously, that all opinions are created equal. Therefore, no evaluation of their opinions' merit is required. And the best part, you've seen it. I know you've seen it. When these half-facts are challenged, right? A hole gets poked in the cheap illusion of knowledge. People, especially digital versions of these people, immediately accuse you of dismissing the vast 
wisdom. <laughs> they have earned through hours of surfing the internet. They call their click and bounce collection of low-hanging fruit research. They do it. Do your research. I've done my research. Have you? Is that what you've done? Is that really what you've done? Have you researched your topic thoroughly? Have you? Hmm. I don't know. Now, according to Dr. Eli, when the internet and the holy click took over, it allowed the user to personalize their informational reality, their personal informational reality. I call it their boutique. Tailor it into boutique truth. It became an interaction with rather than a reception of news and information. Dr. Eli continues by saying, correctly in my view, that in the informational consumer's experience, receptivity, okay, stay with me here, receptivity in the passive, absorptive, open to what you may have to teach me sense of the idea is antiquated. Do I need to say that again? I'm going to say that again. I think that might be a little confusing. In the informational consumer's experience, receptivity, the old idea that you were passive when you were learning something, when you were taking in information, right? That you would be open to what someone else could teach you. That they may know more than you and you're receptive. Receptivity. The, 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 the idea behind that is antiquated now. It's out of style. It's done. Now it's the active rather than receptive, especially interactive relationship with the information that's taken over, right? The holy opinion is now in charge here. The opinion, or in Heights model, the emotive prejudgment, the elephant is in charge. It's the gatekeeper of your information and whether or not you'll accept it. People have said that the gatekeepers are gone, Right? Now, that's not entirely true. Where once there were at least semi-qualified and people who possessed at least some, you know, reasonable degree of professional expertise, varying quality, I suppose, but they were at least there. They knew what they were doing. The professionals, there were standards in place. The new gatekeepers are our personal pachyderms. Nothing gets through that skull unless it feeds the elephant of personal pre-opinion, preconceived notions. At one time, the assumption was that the message sender, the person talking, knew what they were talking about, that they held more factual information than the receiver did. Now, in the world where the distinction between reality and chosen perception, fact and opinion, those lines are blurred now. But what rules? It's informational anarchy. I'll say it again. Not only that, but everyone's now broadcasting as though they're qualified eye reporters or e-reporters, covering the news of the day as eminent experts on everything. Whether they're at the latest Trump rally, at Antifa march, I have a story about that I'd love to tell you, or ranting away to whomever will listen on Facebook Live or YouTube Live. Don't say podcast. Don't you do it. Nope. Now, some people have cheered the quote-unquote freedom that comes from banishing the gatekeepers out of the proverbial cornfield. It's good what you've done to Dan. It's real good. That was swell. It was just swell. That was really good. I kind 
still liked it a little bit better when we had real television. Things like that. But how can you mean it? Why, television is much better than anything we ever used to get. Oh, yes, it's fine. Why, Anthony's television is the best television we've ever seen. That is such a creepy Twilight Zone. If you've never seen that, go look it up. But like the Twilight episode, this classic here, seizing authority from even imperfect adults. Granted, imperfect, I understand that, but giving it to children who are slaves to their id's impulses can have horrific consequences. In 2011, Dr. Eli wrote that we were faced with the possibility that intelligent debate would be replaced with what he called a muddle of facts and outsized online personalities. Does this sound familiar? In 2011, he said this, before we had really much of a notion about these virtual social media celebrities moving beyond YouTube to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Most people seem to think that these people that I'm talking about, these social media celebrities, are limited to the trivial realms once occupied by Paris Hilton or a Kardashian. That's not the case anymore. Social media influencing, which in its traditional definition is brand building via one degree of propaganda or another, right? Marketing, branding. That's long since spread to social and political influencing now, where the only claim to fame are opinions tailored to one tribe or another, sort of like a Glenn Beck comes to Twitter. Beyond that, the narcissism coming from social media and the anonymity and lack of accountability inherent in the medium, the social media medium, allows people to consider themselves as simply too good to need a teacher, a mentor, an editor, or even a fact checker. They don't bother to check their work. They don't bother to put forth anything, any sort of effort to make sure they got anything right. It doesn't matter if it's right. It's not meant to be right. It's meant to get attention. All too often, we're quick to elevate this holy personal opinion to something that resembles the final authority's word, conflating and presenting usually thoughtless opinions, remember that, as unquestionable truths. Individual and professional influencers are like Disseminate this quote-unquote authoritative content, their content producers, for the enjoyment, praise, and consumption of their followers, their fans, internet performers. In the context of legitimate media, as Time put it, maybe 10 years ago, every time a news source dies and an online opinion site rises up, we move a little closer to the fact-starved day when the loudmouths have only themselves to talk about. The latest social media outrage story on the nightly news. There's a guy named Andrew Keene, and he called this a democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. That's such a great phrase, I want to repeat it. A democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. Crowd-generated content. Gustav, I summon thee. I'll get to Mr. LeBon at some point again. And people looking for honest information become buried in this democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. And there's also another effect, the jaded cynical one, where after being so consistently exposed to swamp muck, the honest information seeker becomes suspicious of everything. Regardless of what it is, he's immediately suspicious of everything and still gives up. Now, maybe he doesn't join an ideological tribe, 
for the pre-produced narrative benefit it provides. But by disengaging, he's eventually uninformed at the same time. Right? Now, he's still closer to the truth than the man gorging on propaganda. That's an old Jefferson thing. Man who knows nothing closer to the truth than the man who believes falsehoods. I can't quantify it. I can't quantify it. It's just a sense I have. Okay? I don't know how many have just checked out, have just given up on all this until election day, or even maybe just given up on that and letting, just riding the roller coaster wherever it goes. I don't know. They don't have their echo chamber that I can go check, that I can go take a temperature in, right? They don't have a hashtag. But those who have decided to stop trying to get to the truth because they can't tell good information from bad and become folks who've adopted a doctrine and chosen to seek out whatever supports the doctrine's inseminated opinions, I'll get to that too, thereby feeding the elephant, those folks have become a locust plague on the national discourse. I'm telling you, if you want real information, you are in trouble. As I pointed out in the Media 101 pod, the online and electronic media, by necessity, has been forced into abandoning the very thing they supposedly provide. News. At least semi-objective information. They cannot provide it. You don't want it. They can't sell it. It has to be tailored to your wants. Your tribe has become boutique infotainment. And to be honest, it was probably doomed as soon as quote-unquote news became a market commodity trafficked on a nationwide marketplace, even a global marketplace. It's got to have an audience, got to have a base, got to have a target demo. The enlightened citizenry has abandoned enlightenment in favor of ostentatious displays of sophistry. I love that phrase. Ostentatious displays of sophistry. Being right in an argument means less than appearing right. Being smart means nothing compared to appearing smart to your virtual fans or whomever happens to be watching this particular example of trial by rhetorical combat. It's barbaric blood sport. Rather than the forum, it's the Colosseum. But it's not even that, really. I mean, these are plastic gladiators with distorted views of their own brilliance. They've learned to actually believe their own avatar's delusional bullshit. I mean, think about this. If you cut their internet connection and access to the echo chamber or Google and ready, readily available scripture, ideological scripture or doctrine, they most often either stutter, stammer, trip all over themselves or cognitively lurch toward anything ridiculous or not, in some desperate attempt to maintain the elevated self-image, the illusion of knowledge fraudulently built online. They have to maintain it because it's their identity now. Heights model nailed this too. When the illusion of wisdom propped up with bullshit begins breaking down and the post hoc scramble for rationalizing argumentation fails, they often say something confoundingly jaw-droppingly ignorant and then simply state, I believe what I believe. Okay, that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. And that's if you're lucky. Sometimes you get some twisted version of, you can't prove God isn't real. Just apply that as you see fit. The basic idea of that. <laughs> or you'll never convince me the earth isn't flat. 
Oh, you never convinced me that vaccinations don't cause autism. Exactly, and that's the point. Take them at their word when they say that and disconnect from the, engage- the, the conversation, the interaction. Move along, you found a zombie. There is no point in, in, in interacting or engaging this person anymore. Let them go eat their brains, if they can find any. <laughs> They're not stupid. These people aren't stupid. It's a, it's a mistake to classify them as ignorant or stupid. I'll get to more of this later. I, I, you have to be patient with me here. But you have to understand the data glut. You have got to understand how appealing this is to people who desperately want to understand the world but are overwhelmed with data and don't know where to go to get good information. Now, of course, there are really stupid people out there. There are really stupid people who believe really stupid things because they desperately want to believe them. I'm more concerned with the people, right now anyway, I'm more concerned with the people who can't tell the difference and have just given up and clung to anything they can find. There's a lot of them. I'm sure of it. Moving on, you can see this my ignorance is as good as their knowledge thing as an extension of democracy. You can see it that way if you like to. One man, one vote, even when it comes to facts. Maybe you see it as a huge step toward democracy's utopian evolution. Yeah? A simple, basic, fundamental democracy demands, if not enlightened, at least an informed citizenry. It's essential, and by informed, the founders did not mean propagandized with happy facts. Recitable happy facts. I'm informed. Fake news. See, I'm informed. That's not what they meant. Children in cages, I'm informed. See, I can repeat it. That's not what they meant. I do not know their souls. I could not read Tom and Jefferson's heart, James Madison, none of them. Didn't know them, never met them, believe it or not. I can't ch- channel them in some you know, sleep state seance at 3 a.m. I can't do that, believe it or not. But I can tell you, that's not what they meant by being informed. Bet you my soul, bet it right now. Now, it's also possible to extract context-free facts that are useful for your own personal propaganda campaign by bouncing from site to site or Google result to Google result looking for supporting data. You can do that. It's real easy online. We've all seen it at work. If you're looking to deceive yourself or someone else, the Internet and social media is your playground. It's your brothel, if you will. If your goal is to preach on the street corner to be seen by man... Social media is your pulpit. Knock yourself out if that's your goal. And can you find good, conscientious people? Absolutely. I have. People I'm glad I've met. Even if only online. I met one on Twitter. On Twitter of all places last week. But are they the norm? Are these people the norm? If they are, if they are, if these types of people are the kinds of people that make up most of social media's user base, They may indeed be. If they are, are they the ones speaking? Are they the ones who have a voice? Are they making these reasonable voices heard? Maybe setting an example, inspiring others to come out and speak. Hell no. I don't even do that on Twitter. Me. I'm not afraid to speak. Maybe you've noticed. (laughs) I'm not afraid of pretty much anything online. I've engaged in combat for 11, 12 years. Really good at it. I choose not to. And if I'm not going to do it, 
Why would people who have a le- less of an interest in this stuff, why would they do that? Why would they bother? I'm coming up with a theory here. After a couple of weeks on the Twitter, I hate the Twitter. I got more on the Twitter coming up for you in the next segment. But I've spent a couple of weeks on there, and i found that the people with the most followers are the biggest douchebags. Ostentatious, obnoxious, just downright jackasses. And the people that have like 47 are the ones who seem to be the most sensible. <laughs> because sensibility doesn't attract attention. You gotta be a you gotta be an asshole to thrive and get fans and followers on Twitter. Or you've got to be have some name recognition. You gotta get pumped up by somebody else, be part of a group like the IDW. Ostentatious, man. Ostentatious displays. Let me use this 16-letter word when the five-letter word right over here sitting on the counter would work just fine. More people would understand it. No, I got to use a big one. I need a beer. Oh, but back to my point. These people keep to themselves to stay above the ridiculous simian fray that is Twitter and Facebook. They don't, they don't jump into these things anymore. And for the individual, that person, that's wise. But what does that do to overall public discourse? Now, understand, this is where discourse happens now. Discourse doesn't happen at the water cooler like it used to 30 years ago. You don't go to work now, talk about what you read in the newspaper. No, you have your discourse online. There's a reason the Russians targeted Facebook. They weren't hacking the New York Times They're doing it again, and they're doing it on social media. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that's their method of choice? They're not hacking HuffPo. That's because that's where discourse takes place. That's where people get their perception of all things social and all things political. You don't have to like it. You don't have to even really want to agree with it, but if you think that's not the case, you're not living in reality. You can't say that it's not happening, that social media discourse is not the main discourse in the country. You can't say that and also claim that Russian tampering in the election was a real thing. You can't do that. And they're saying that it's going to get worse in 2020. It's still happening. Why are they targeting social media? Because that's public square of the 21st century. Or at least this part of it. When the reasonable voices sort of fade away and get drowned out by the loud mouths, how does that affect people who depend on their own perception of public opinion? How do people measure public opinion? If the reasonable voices have gone away online and you've only got the the ridiculous idiots, the loud mouthed idiots screaming and uh, sort of the monkeys masturbating in the window, how much is that masturbating monkey in the window? If that's all you've got left, Poo-slinging monkeys. And you've got people trying to get a gauge on how people think and how people are feeling and which direction they're going. you got a couple of options. You can poll people. Or you can be lazy and look at your Twitter feed. See who's emailing you. See who's calling you. It's not people who have checked out of the political process because it's so ridiculous. I can tell you that. It's activists. It's extremists. People drunk on their activism. Those are the people who get listened to because they are the ones who are making noise because the sensible people have checked out. And when all the people have given up and checked out, the loud mouths are driving to the debate, 
I wonder how much that's affecting things politically today, as far as political parties go. And I wonder if it's even repairable at this point. How do you get people to come back and start and start engaging? How do you do that? I don't even want to take part in this anymore. I do not want to engage anyone on social media most days. You give me two weeks on Twitter, I hate everyone. And this is what I do, right? If I am disgusted with you, the collective you, not the Tonzillophile, of course not. You are a special breed of listener. You're sophisticated and a connoisseur of fine electronic media. But how do you bring them back to that? How do you bring people back to the process? You get to have a politician come out, oh, gotta have unity. No, it isn't you, Mr. Biden or Bernie. Not you, Lizzie. It's what's happening in the discourse, what's happening in, in the society and how people despise each other and how people, uh, the bilateral deplorability of people. De- deplorality. I'm going to make up a word right here on the Escaping the K podcast. Deplorality. Deplorables. Deplorality. People check the fuck out. They don't want to talk to you anymore. They don't want to talk to me anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore, and you're probably reasonable. I don't want to say anything. I'm afraid you're going to be an idiot. I'm afraid you're kidding me. I'm afraid you're, you're just concealing your idiocy until, I don't know, organic coffee comes up and you got some opinion bomb you need to drop on me and then tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> There's a lot more to this, my friends. But I'm telling you, propping up the illusion of wisdom and knowledge has not only become fashionable, it's become accepted. It's how things are done now. People really think they're as smart as their Google search. They've started to believe it. They've started to believe that repackaging someone else's doctrine, rewording it, thinking something up themselves, makes them wise. They've come to believe their own bullshit. Superficial exposure to information is also often mistaken for mastery of the subject. Pick your own example. Dr. Eli points out that rather than knowing anything well, we know less about more. That's a really good way to put it. I'm going to say that again. Dr. Eli points out that rather than knowing anything well, we know less about more. We're generalists rather than specialists. We know a little bit about everything. And taken to the extreme, he suggests that this tendency will leave us knowing nothing about everything. His last paragraph of the uh, Illusion of Knowledge chapter, again, this was all written in 2011, right? is uh, sobering. It's prescient and more apt than ever as we further descend into bilateral extremism, pseudoscience, and comfortable anti-intellectualism. I will give that to you when we come back. Uh, The last thing I talked about, the last thing I said, I'm going to repeat a little bit here to give you just a, a little reinforcement of the context. Right, that this online information fix, this democratization of information taken to the extreme will leave us knowing nothing about everything. Now, this is going to be a direct quote from Chapter 8 of Virtually You by Dr. Eli. All right, He says that John Gale and Suzanne Douglas express their fear that the Internet is devolving into mindlessness. He uses a quote here, creating a citizenry that can't think or read, is unfit for jury duty and can be entertained but not enlightened, end quote. 
Continue to read here. Yes, the great equalizing effect of the Internet wipes out differences in experience, stature, and roles by erasing discrepancies in our access to information. But instead of seeing our democracy truly enhanced by this, we risk moving toward, this is where it gets creepy, we risk moving toward demagoguery where everybody is indeed equal, equally misinformed. Keep in mind, this was written in 2011. I'll continue. Given how the internet has shortened our attention spans when it comes to reading and meaningful analysis, and given the psychological 140 keystroke limit we now set for ourselves before declaring informational overload, it can become easier for demagogues to spread their rhetorical bullets and one-liner propaganda slogans. Don't go nuts, children in cages. I'm going to repeat that last line. It can become easier for demagogues to spread their rhetorical bullets and one-liner propaganda slogans. Consider that foreshadowing, my friends. I'll continue. So that they are not believed, their veiled half-truths require vertical probing. If you don't want to believe this stuff, paraphrasing now, if you don't want to believe this stuff, if you don't want to believe their veiled half-truths, it requires vertical probing, dissection, debate. But one is too distracted for that. You can't do it. That is creepy considering it was written in 2011, a full five years before. The orange demagogue, the orange demifrog, decided to slither forth from the Republican swamp and managed to get elected. That's where we're going next, kids. There's a reason that I highlighted the one-line propaganda slogan point. Because, as Walter Lippmann pointed out, I think I used this quote in the last podcast I don't have it in front of me, I'll paraphrase, that any society that lacks the tools to distinguish between truth and falsehood does not remain a free society. It's a quote that's almost 100 years old. If you lack, as a culture and as a society, the tools to differentiate between truth and falsehood, you do not remain free. You become susceptible to propaganda. We are so awash in propaganda today that we cannot tell what it is anymore. And part of that is because we do not care. We're only concerned about doing righteous battle with the evil other. Winning. Owning the liberals. Owning the conservatives. Owning the Trump bots. We just want to win. We'll take any weapon we can find. And they're happy to provide it. And they're happy to craft your opinions for you in the process. That is the essence of propaganda. It's the formulation, the crafting of man's opinions. It's the essence of propaganda, telling you what to believe. That is why I offended so many of you when I said most of your opinions are thoughtless. Literally, they are adopted. They have been inseminated, ejaculated into your mind's by your ideology or your doctrine. Maybe your religion, in the literal sense, not the political kind. Most of your opinions do not belong to you. 
If you lack the capacity for critical thought and creating a state of intellectual autonomy with your mind, your thoughts are not your own. The best tonic, the best antidote, the best antibody I have found for that are Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance and John Stuart Mill's on liberty. These are sort of how-to manuals and uh, inspirational speeches or pamphlets, I guess, in Emerson's case, about how to trust yourself, how to reclaim the autonomous mind, how to become a man again instead of a chirping parrot. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we're going to win this battle. I'm not convinced we are at all. The sophistication, advancement of both the technology and the propaganda may be too much for us. But what's peculiar is that we have these two equally populated camps with their own specific propaganda, their own informational missiles, scud missiles, pointed directly at each other. The propaganda demonizing the other camp equally. How does that end when you've got two equally stocked camps ready to kill each other politically? But none of the, none of the people in either one of these camps really give two shits either way about telling truth from falsehood, about dissecting and extracting propaganda from their minds. How does that end? How can that possibly end well? Not hopeful. I'm not going to blow smoke up your butt. Some people, some of you are more hopeful than me. Great. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I'll tell you what. You guys remind me a lot. A lot of the rhetoric you're giving me, this dismissive talk, oh, it's not going to be that bad, reminds me a lot of the talk that I heard before Donald Trump took office, before he was elected. Yeah, he'll never be elected. People aren't going to elect him. Yes, they did. I'm going to say it again. I saw it coming for any of you. Any of y'all. I saw it. You didn't. And you sound exactly like you did four years ago. And with, with the advent of the technology in the echo chambers, there's become... <laughs> Here it comes. You've been waiting for this, I'm sure, today. This thing online, specifically on Twitter. I talked about how... You know what? Let me just play this and I'll come out of the back end of it. Prepare yourselves. This gets a little intense. Twitter is a cesspool, man. It's a shit show. I keep running into this thing on, on Twitter, and I know you've seen it. You've had to have seen it if you've spent more than an hour on that platform in your lifetime. But people, people are aware just how shitty and disgusting that platform is from top to bottom. People are trying to figure it out. And I keep running into this phrase, well, welcome to Twitter. <laughs> oh, that's just Twitter. It's one of the most asinine things I have ever seen. Well, I, I apparently missed, when I signed up for Twitter here a few weeks ago, I apparently missed the optional accessory that goes up your asshole and takes control of your cognition and turns you into a raging cunt. Let's just Twitter. Is that how this fucking works? Did I miss this? Is that on Amazon somewhere? Can I get it cheap, maybe used? Disinfected, of course. I don't want your asshole juice up mine. Bullshit. It's become the id on parade. This is what people would be like 
Yeah, I know you're going to be out there making your little fucking excuses, especially if you enjoy the Twitter, enjoy running around like monkeys, attacking people on their little scooters as they drive by. I have a great video I found this week uh, on Facebook. I'd love to post it to Twitter. If it wasn't a Facebook video, it would be on there right now. I would tweet that motherfucker every 30 seconds all day. It's a, a video of these monkeys, and people walk by and they just jump on them. That's what Twitter is. You are the monkey. Again, I think this medium, and to a degree, Facebook as well, and, and, and every comment section since the beginning of the fucking internet, has given people the means and the capacity to scrape whatever domestication society has put on. This is the state of who we would be in the jungle. If you can think abstractly, if you're capable of that, and if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you are. This, If you go onto Twitter and you just run around, spend two or three hours just going and, and clicking on every random post you find, preferably political ones, but even baseball, for fuck's sakes. I started another podcast, a baseball podcast, because I wanted an escape from this bullshit. I thought it would feel good. Baseball Twitter's worse, almost, than political Twitter. It doesn't matter what, what you're discussing. Exhibitionist country. That's what they should rename Twitter. It's ridiculous. But I think that if you went and you exercised your abilities of abstraction, your imagination just a little bit, wander around on Twitter for a few hours, you're going to see exactly what people are. I don't think it's just Twitter. I think that's the naked id running around. That if you were to scrape the thin veneer of civilization off of us, it would resemble Twitter. I think that's where the id goes to frolic. I think that that is closer to the human reality than civilization and domestication. The self-domestication process that we've put ourselves through for the last few thousand years. Twitter is where we came from. And Twitter is where we want to return to. I don't like that thought. I don't like saying it. It feels like cynicism. But at some point, I mean, I'm sick and tired of that fucking accusation, too. Oh, you're just being cynical, Todd. You gotta have hope. Stop it. There's a fine line between cynicism and realism. There's also a fine line between optimism and delusion. Are you sure? I th I'm pretty confident that when I say Twitter... When I say I think that's closer to the human species, the, 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 the natural state of who and what we are, I think I'm on the side of realism, not cynicism. You have better show your work if you're going to levy that accusation to me. Because it would appear that all the evidence is, is on my side. That's some full frontal Toddzilla. That's some old stuff there. But that's true. I think the uh, id on parade... I really like that imagery. That's, what, that's exactly what I think that uh, Twitter specifically and social media in a lot of different ways has become. I think this is where the id, as I said in that little clip, I think that's, this is where the id goes to frolic. And later on in this book, Dr. Eli connected another dot. Hobbes' Leviathan. Are you familiar with Leviathan? It's a pretty cynical uh, outlook. Thomas Hobbes put forth a couple of hundred years ago, and he thinks that the natural state of man is barbaric. I'm becoming more convinced every week the natural state of the id is what we see on Twitter. 
And that might be the authentic state of the undomesticated, untrained beast that resides in each one of us. Without informational control of some sort, we will find ourselves in a state of informational anarchy. The shaved ape might revert back to its natural, barbarous state. And it's terrifying. It's not a happy humanist, man is God. Oh, here comes the brotherhood of man. It's inevitable. It's not, not down that line at all. And again, maybe I'm wrong. But I am really uninterested in assuming, you know, the good is good viewpoint on this. That you've got to question whether good is actually good. You've got to question the accepted standpoint, the humanist standpoint. And just about every human being I know likes to come from the standpoint and the the position that human beings are at their core good. That our natural state is to live together in peace and harmony, have a Coke and a smile, right? That's what all of us like to believe resides down at the core of who we are. That it might not be. Because the evidence seems pretty clear to me. You offer people the anonymity. You take away the accountability. How do they behave? The closest thing we can see is the Twitter zoo. That is how people choose to behave when they're not held accountable. And there's no first-person consequences to their behavior. You put those people in a lawless state where there are no consequences, I think Twitter becomes the organic reality. Thomas Hobbes, it would seem, agreed with me. Or maybe I should say I agree. Now, I came up with this before I read Leviathan. (laughs) So, he agrees with me. You don't like that idea. That's fine. I understand. It's uncomfortable. Let's play the philosophy game here. How would cancer see itself? Would the tumor also have a narcissistic interpretation of itself? Seeing itself as good? What about Stalin? Did Stalin think he was evil? Or was he doing good for the people? Was he doing good for mankind? Advancing, progressing mankind? Insert your own little Hitler reference here. The question must be asked. The times and the evidence and the course we're on demands it. Again, it comes back to Lippmann for me, man. Any loss of the ability or willingness to tell truth from falsehood leads one to a loss of intellectual autonomy. You're no longer a man but a piece of malleable clay whose opinions are inseminated by someone else. And I've already indicated why that's important. Because that's the goal of every PR expert, every media relations and public relations person, who are literally the same exact thing, by the way, propagandists. Public relations and propaganda are literally proper use of the word the same damn thing. The man who coined the term public relations said as much. He needed a new word because propaganda became stigmatized by the wars, the world wars. Needed something softer. And I'm of the opinion that propaganda has combined with an unwillingness to tell truth from falsehood to create an environment where we are so awash in it that we cannot tell the difference between propaganda and fact anymore. I don't think as a collective we could tell the difference. Happy thought. Not exactly um, <laughs> motivational material. You're not going to put a lot of those quotes on a <laughs> sunset picture and hang it in your office so you can look at it when you're depressed and feel better about the world, are you? Uh, sorry about that. I'm not here to coddle you. When you abandon 
a tentative connection or a tethering or even a thread of connection to external truth. And you can no longer differentiate either by choice, cognitive ability. Maybe it's just not out there. Maybe none of the media outlets are providing it. It doesn't matter. Functionally, it's the same thing. When there is no mechanism to tell truth from falsehood, tyranny is not far behind. One side will win. When you have competing propaganda models, one side is eventually going to win. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how much damage is done, how many bodies are lying in the gutter. Some, at some point, either the country is going to fall apart or one of these sides is going to win. And either way, something's going to fill that vacuum. Whatever fills that vacuum will impose itself upon the other. I hate to use Nazi Germany. I hate to use Stalinist Russia. But do you think that the Nazis felt like they were living under tyranny? Like the, the members of the Nazi party, do you think that they saw their country as tyrannical? Do you suppose that the communists, the members of the communist party in Stalinist Russia, do you suppose that they saw their government as, as, as tyrannical and oppressive, as authoritarian, or do they just see it as the right way to go? And tyranny is, in a lot of ways, and authoritarianism is, in a lot of ways, in the eyes of the beholder, if you're a member of the party, do you see it as tyrannical? In our case, things finally shake themselves out if one of these ideological camps indeed do become authoritarian and do indeed win, will tyranny and authoritarianism be a matter of perspective on which side you reside on? Of course it will. That's how it works. Just because you specifically aren't being tyrannized does not mean you do not live in a tyrannical state. It's incredibly important to understand the mechanisms of propaganda, how it works, how it works you over, how it is you can hear the phrase fake news and no collusion, no obstruction. You can hear all those and be repulsed. But yet, you'll hear kids in cages coming out of various mouths on your side and it won't bother you a bit. Or vice versa. There's a method. There's a reason it's done. Thank you, Jacques Ellul. Thank you, Jacques Ellul, indeed. Once again, the title of that old episode is The Illusion of Wisdom, Democratized Opinion. Released it on May 23rd of 2019. It's episode number 17 in the playlist if you want to go check it out. If that's your thing, if you want to hear 17 minutes of me talking about Justin Amash and politics before I get to all this, knock yourself out. It is there for your enjoyment, your perusing, your consumption. You can hear the whole Twitter rant if you want to. One other thing I wanted to get into, The Social Dilemma. It's a new documentary. It's on Netflix. It dropped this week and is creating a bit of a sensation, a bit of a reverberation throughout social media industry. It's a condemnation, an attack of its corrosiveness and what it's doing to us, both socially and manipulatively. Brian has seen it. We're going to talk about it on Sunday. He described it this way. Holy shit, you have to watch this. I intend to do that immediately after I upload this. He and I will have a lot to say about that documentary this week. So be listening for that. EscapingTheCave.com is the website. I'm Todd. Till next time, so long.